0: Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. Here we dive deep into the diverse worlds of regenerative living, permaculture, and natural building as we aspire to help you reach your highest potential for yourself, for your community, and for this beautiful planet that we share. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gauthier, and I'm thrilled to guide you through this week's episode, so let's jump right in. Sarah from New Society Publishers. At New Society, we are committed to ensuring that the health and diversity of the environment is conserved for the benefit of future generations. Find out more about how we put people and planet first at newsociety.com or on any of your favorite social media channels. I've been so fortunate to get to speak directly with so many people who have created incredible examples of permaculture abundance and ecological health and resilience through this podcast. And though I've gotten to visit many permaculture projects and practitioners, many of the ones that I've seen in person are either just in the early stages of getting off the ground, or haven't quite found their balance between financial and ecological prosperity. The best examples that I've seen in person are the projects that Alex Kronick and his team have managed in the area around Antigua Guatemala, namely Cooba Farms and his new project in Paramos. Now back in Season 2, Neil Hegarty, who I used to work with on the Granja Siquin project, interviewed Alex in an interview called The Most Impressive Permaculturalist That You've Never Heard Of. And since then, I've been back many times to visit Alex both at his farm slash event space slash restaurant at Cooba Farms, and even more notably, the larger project that has been underway for just a couple years in the town of Paramos, northwest of Antigua. There, Alex has been combining pieces of land that he's been able to acquire as he builds towards his dream of restoring the native forests of that region and strategically incorporate agroforestry, market gardening, ecotourism, and event space to ensure the value and protection of the native ecosystem is preserved indefinitely. Now though I didn't have the time to bring recording equipment along on the few trips that I made up there in person, I got to catch Alex on a call later to ask him to go over a few of the many intricacies of his plan and steps for development that are still in the early stages, but gaining incredible traction on his site. In this interview, we cover many of the details of the unique climate and context where the land is located and how it informs goals and designs that Alex is developing. He talks at length about how he and his team are choosing which of the native species to propagate and use for reforestation and how they're creating nurseries to grow thousands of trees at a time. We also talk about how the government incentives for reforestation in Guatemala are not as beneficial as they might appear and how navigating the regulations can both help and hinder ecological goals. We even cover how different trees can affect the water table on your land, passive irrigation methods, even education programs for school age kids and much more. Now I've learned so much from Alex and his methodical approach to land-based projects. He's definitely one of the voices in permaculture and ecological business that I hope more people look to and reference as examples of no-nonsense results-based progress. I've also included a bunch of pictures from his farm and nursery that Alex sent to me and you can check them all out at the website at AbundantEdge.com. Now there are a few moments of bad reception from the internet call, but they only last a few seconds and it's not hard to follow. So with that said, I'll hand things over now to Alex. Hey Alex, thanks so much for making the time today. How are you doing, man?
1: I'm doing good. Um, It's a great day here in Guatemala. No rain, which we need, but other than that, It's a nice day.
0: Nice. Now, so you guys are in the rainy season right now. You said you've got a dry day today, but you've got so many other things going on with your life. You're splitting your time between multiple businesses, multiple land projects. You just recently had a child. Congratulations on that.
1: Thanks. Uh, Yeah, lots of big changes. I actually quit my other job last week, so I'm full time now at the farm.
0: Whoa, that's a big step. Congratulations on that as well.
1: Yeah, we'll spend more time with my daughter and wife. Figured. Uh, Yeah, they're worth it.
0: You never get that time back. Now look, so we did a previous interview with you. It was Neil who did the interview with you last time. And so we'll breeze past your background um, because if anybody is interested, they can check out the previous episode that we did called the the best permaculture list that you've never heard of. So you grew up mostly in Guatemala, but you split your time between the US and uh, and Guatemala for a while. We talked in the last episode about your project in Antigua, Cooba Farms. And until now, you've been known mostly in your community and around the world as the founder of Cooba Farms in Antigua, Guatemala, which has been featured in the New York Times. You had a lot of success with that project. Uh, like I said, any listeners who are interested in that can go and see the previous episode. But let's talk about now your project in Paramos, which is a town about 40, 45 minutes drive away from Antigua. and: half an hour about half an hour. Oh, about half an hour. Good. <laughs> Not too far to go. And I've been out there to visit a couple of times, but it's been a few months since I've seen you now that I've moved out to Spain. So tell me a little bit about the vision for this project and kind of set the scene for me. What kind of terrain are you working with and what's the overall vision?
1: Okay. So Paramos is a much different project than Calba Farms here in town. It's um Three acres uh, in town, but uh, Paramos is 200 acres and expanding as we're looking to buy more land as it comes. Um, I have businesses interested in investing for growth in it. Um, and the idea behind it is more reforestation, uh, greening the mountains, getting more water, uh, and uh, biodiversing the species that are around. So that's that's the overall project with the idea of bringing in uh, tourists, which we already get a lot to the town to the farm in town, taking them on out there to do a little bit more of a <clears throat> extensive um, visit in terms of uh, housing, and uh, we we'll over like staying the night or two, and um, eating, but also walking through the forest, seeing wildlife, and uh, understanding what the concept is yeah.
0: now you are also still kind of producing food crops there as well you've got something about like if, if I remember correctly from the last time I was out there, it's about a 60 40 split 60% of the vegetables and the food that you produce for market being set out in that uh, land in paramos and about 40 at Cooba farms mostly just because it's a much smaller operation is that right
1: yeah that's correct
0: and so you're kind of in this very hilly, mountainy terrain, actually in both sites, but because the site in Antigua is smaller, it's not, so, um, it's, it's not on such a pendiente, um, a disleveled surface. But out in Paramos, you've got uh, serious declines going into this valley, and there's probably a ton of microclimates in there. How did you kind of decide on where to focus on producing your crops and where to focus on reforestation?
1: So I focused on where to plant crops based on where there wasn't forest. I'm not going to cut down forest to plant trees, to plant veggies or other items. So I'm protecting the forest that's already there. So I chose areas that were already deforested since uh, the the land that we've got there has been purchased through multiple neighbors. So we started with one decent sized property and we've been buying out the neighbors little by little. And so choosing areas that are not forested, um, have a good sun exposure, and uh, very important, there's springs, and um, so choosing areas where we can gravity feed from the springs. So yeah, those were the, the the most um, optimal areas. That doesn't mean we can't farm a- a- elsewhere, but in order to, in order to get the most out of out of the resources there, those were the areas that were chosen, and there was plenty of them. So that's where we're at.
0: Sure. Now, give me an idea of how degraded the land was when you purchased it. Because like you said, it had gone through many previous owners, many of whom had kind of deforested the, the terrain, and others who had planted perhaps different crops like avocados um, or, or perhaps used it as pasture land in the past. And you've got quite a diverse yeah, uh,
1: most, most people who we bought the land from were planting uh, vegetables for export. Um, basically on, on certain seasons and then on the other seasons they were planting corn and beans, their staple foods, but everything was done non-organic and therefore we had to go where we've been doing processes to clean out all, all the trails, all the traces of all those things by letting it weed, collecting then the weeds, planting certain types of crops that, um, absorb, um, these nutrients and then using it for animal feed and then, uh, and then getting into actual um, planting of crops.
0: And what kind of plants have you been using for the remediation of the land?
1: Uh, We've been using like daikons. Uh, Those seem to be very well, you know, they're like these big roots, radishes, and uh, they tend to loosen up the soil, absorb all the all the heavy metals and any uh, uh, salts and all sorts of other stuff left behind. Um, so we've been using that and fodder, fodder beets, I guess that's how you call them fodder mm-hmm. beets. Yeah. So those have been the main, the main ones, uh, followed by some legumes that are like uh, you, you can use as uh, kind of like a chop and drop thing. So um, those, those have been more of the, the things we've been using. To clean out the area. Plus we left it at least a year over a year just weed out and then took out all those weeds and uh composted them somewhere else. So
0: and now you're saying you were feeding those a lot to your animals as well. You've got quite a number of different animals. And tell me a little bit about how you manage those in rotation and with different types of feed.
1: Yeah, so we have pigs, we have lamb, we have ducks, we have chickens. Um those are the animals we're running out there. And, um, yeah, we just have them fenced in, uh, in decent sized areas. And every so often we move them from one fenced area to the next and then to the next and behind either comes another animal or a crop. And then when it's greened again, we keep moving them back in. Um, we use the water from the spring and, um, 50% of the time we're using corn that we grow at the farm. The other 50, we have to outsource it, try to get the best that we can when we can when we're not growing our own and uh we're starting to do all our hay bales so we can have um a lot of dry food during the rainy season when they need dry food or else you know only green food it's not enough so we're working on on trying to be as as sustainable as possible with these animals trying to feed them as much as possible from the farm um so that's really what we do uh the only animals that are not—I'm not too happy about—are pigs uh, when they're breastfeeding. I gotta kind of give them a, a supplement, but it's only during the feed, the milking process, the the when they're feeding their babies. They tend to go very, um, very lean when they have ten, twelve piglets sucking on it twenty-four-seven.
0: So. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Now tell me about the unique situation of your water resources there because you're in the wet dry tropics that I've talked about a lot on this podcast in the past because it was a very similar climate to what we had there at the lake but even though you get a huge amount of water in a certain season it's almost completely dry for about half of the year and given those big changes in elevation how are you making sure that water gets where it needs to on the land?
1: Yeah so uh, one of the main things is where we're at, we're applying swales um, from all the roads where the cars come in into the property. Plus, uh, in certain areas, it's it's such a big property; it's hard to do it on the whole thing. But uh, we're moving little by little, putting swales here and there, some key lines. Um, but also, we're planting lots of uh, forest, you know, and uh, planting lots of trees. Uh, I've been learning a lot about planting trees in that area. It's different in everywhere you go. But um, let's say this year, my goal was 10,000 trees. We weren't really able to plant 10,000. We got 5,000 in. So that's really good. Um, I'm still happy with that amount. Uh, The best, the, the difference between this and last year is even though we planted a lot of trees last year is last couple of years, we've been planting lots of trees and the majority have been dying out. We've been planting either too late in the rainy season and they're not sticking, or we've been planting too early in the rainy season and the weeds out outgrow the the trees so this year we're we invested in some um, weed whackers a lot more weed whackers and stuff to keep and some keep the weeds down when we're planting the tree so we can tell already that most of them are going to succeed this year so that's good so our nurseries basically we're not buying trees and we're not buying seed That's what happens most of the time is most people are planting trees that are not from the area or are reforesting with non-native species. Um, They're more like species that you can take advantage of, like lumber species, and therefore you disrupt a little bit, uh, if not a lot, um, the system. Uh, So the idea is we're planting special species of the area where we're getting our own seed from our forests. We're making our own nurseries. And fortunately, the species that we have in our native forests there, which are cloud forests, we're at 2,100 meters elevation. So I guess, not sure what that is in feet, but I'm guessing it's like 8,000 feet or something like that. Maybe... Yeah, something like that. But basically, um, the species that we have in that native forest are species that put water into the ground and not suck water out of the ground, like eucalyptus or pine forests and cypress, which that's what most people plant in this area. But unfortunately, they're great lumber, but they, instead of putting water in the ground, they're drying the ground up. And it's a very... Um, basic um, biodiversity that comes out of those um, species in in that area because those are great trees from even much higher elevation in areas where there's less biodiversity so those would do well but in our area which is a cloud forest which has lots of biodiversity if you plant a monocrop of those trees you you get rid of too many many uh, species. So it's better to plant the local ones, which retain more variety.
0: Sure. Sure. Let's step back a little bit because I know that there are incentives for reforestation in Guatemala. The government is actually doing a fairly decent job about um, giving monetary incentives to farmers who have otherwise either cut down their own forest or have land where it has been deforested. And the money is significant enough to actually offer Uh, a really good motivation, especially if they're doing mostly like um, cash crops and fairly subsistence farming. So where are the benefits to these policies and where does it kind of hold back, especially when you're talking about biodiversity in these cases?
1: Yeah, it's a complicated uh, thing to touch, but basically I'm not a big fan of those uh, incentives. Um, I do do a little bit of them because it helps you get a big ally in case of a neighbor trying to do something wrong or uh, something happening nearby. You can put a little bit halt and pressure on that. Um, it's kind of a, a weird system as though you have to hire a, a forest engineer that's certified by them, which you have to pay. And they're quite expensive to set up the program. and. Um, my, my things is that I've seen about it is it really the money you're getting, it really just goes to pay the project. It's very hard to make money off of that, those systems. It's, it's, they were, they're very good at just covering the costs of maintaining the forest and any expenses that need to go with it. But it's, it's not like, Oh, here's a forest. I got, a, you know, 20 acres. Let's put it under the preserve thing. You're not making money. It's, um, it's, it's 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 the money comes when you the project is over and you're able to harvest what's there, which is what most of these projects are. Most of these projects are not set up to indefinite protect the forest forever. They're more projects like okay, well, let's reforest with pine or with cy- cypress and stuff like this. And then ten years later, twenty years later, thirty years later, you know you're harvesting and that's where you're getting. And then you replant uh, trees. Cause you have to replant there. Not just, you can't just clear cut, but so you're you're getting like a, uh, you're covering your costs till the point when you can harvest your, your, um, your yield there. So, um, that's, that's where it's at. But for someone like me, where I'm not in the plan of harvesting, I'm in more in the plan of planting trees that are not the species that, what really happens is most of their projects, I'd say 90, if not more, uh, their percent is like three or four species. Like in my area, the species that they, would re- they, they work with is eucalyptus, cypress, and pine. And in tropical, much warmer climates, it would be like teak or mahogany. And so the amount of species that they're setting up is very little compared to what a real forest offers. Um, and one of them is because there's not nurseries that sell other varieties and there's no studies for the other ones and they haven't really set up things for those other things and because the programs are mostly for planting and then when they're ready you're going to cut and take the yield out so um except for there's a different one which is protecting and protecting is a different type of incentive where it's like you already have a virgin forest you put it under a virgin you put it under a reserve and therefore they pay you for that and there you keep what's there and that's where the where the real biodiverse and stuff is happening but where you're planting trees, it's very it's very different to what I'm doing because I'm planting trees that they've never even heard of, I think, and um, very rare species, and uh, so I'm not gonna really be getting a yield off of this. So I'm just covering my costs. So my yield off of this, which I'm switching, is agro tourism, where I can take tourists, walk them through there, and show them birds and wildlife and 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 that type of. That's going to be my yield out of the situation. But the other yield that I'm going to be getting off of it is putting more water into my soil because the trees that I'm planting are actually water friendly, put water into the ground while as all these programs of reforestation for all all these other places where it's for lumber, they're not water friendly. They're actually sucking up the water from the ground. So it's just, I think their program, there's many things and there's a lot of loopholes in, in the system, but uh, it's at least they're doing something, it's moving forward, it is taking off. There's a lot more um, people being interested in the situation, and that's in general really great for the country. So I think we're moving towards the right direction.
0: Yeah, now tell me about the observation process that helped you to decide which of these uh, kind of rarer and native species you wanted to propagate because, like you said, it took you a while to kind of figure out mostly because a lot of them are not available in nurseries or perhaps don't have a lot of studies or information that you can look up to get answers from. And if I remember correctly, you went around with a lot of local people from that area and that community who know the forest well to observe and figure out which of those kind of kept uh, water in the soil, which were good habitat for biodiversity within like the birds and the, and the fauna of the area. Tell me a little bit about that process.
1: Yeah, so it's just a lot of observation. I've been in that area for about eight years, and I just started planting trees about three years ago. So it was about a five-year observation before I knew what type of trees I have wanted to plant. I'd say 80% of the trees are native. I am introducing some other types of species for beneficial things, but um, uh, mostly working with what I got there. Um, I was seeing, okay, what do birds eat in that area? What do... Wildlife eat in that area. That if you want to bring in wildlife and birds and all that, that's the first thing you got to keep planting. You want more food, more food, more abundance for them, uh, shelter also, and therefore those were important. Um, I kept seeing what was what was growing naturally near the water sources, and I figured those were the water the the trees that were attracting water. And we we're discussing with the locals and everybody. They would they they. they kind of, Concord or what they, 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 they were in agreement with me and therefore, um, I had to start then wondering when was the time when they're putting out seeds? Because each species is a different time when they're putting out seeds and then trials as to how to germinate them. And it wasn't easy. Sometimes we were just wait for the trees, the seeds to fall on the ground, sprout there naturally, and then transplant the babies. Um, But after many years we've been getting better and better and I'm, I I now got more ideas of how to do it even better next year. And hopefully this will keep growing forever with this wisdom, you know? And so, um, we're planting about 14 varieties of local species, um, of big trees, you know, big trees that will grow the very big ones. Plus we're planting maybe another six varieties of medium sized trees that grow do well under the shade of the bigger ones. Um and there's everything from nut trees to um hardwoods to uh fruit trees to legume trees. Um so um they all play up all together they play a good part, you know, different different levels and different um
0: they all serve different functions in the whole system.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, uh, so we're just not playing with one species and monocropping it. And then, you know, when the time's ready, uh, to harvest, you harvest, you could cut and then you plant again, probably the same species again or, or something. So that's usually what the incentive programs are looking like these days for reforestation. It's not like, Oh, we're going to plant a very cool forest with multiple variety and then never (laughs) harvest it. Yeah, if only that were the case. Yeah, so I mean, I think where these programs come in and help a lot for these is like you don't really have costs and then when you harvest, it's it's the big one because you don't have to, you know, most of the time what you were doing, it's an investment for 10, 20, 30 years and then you start seeing some, so then you get the big harvest and then it pays off. Hopefully it pays off for all you've invested in the last 30 years and then, more right Um, Right. with these forests you know like yeah with these forests there's a few things because usually you plant very tight and then you know at five years you do um what we call a raleo what you call like you thin out And then there you get something, and depending on the type of species, what do you do with that thin-out? It could be posts, it could be this. Then you do a second uh, thin-out, like around 10 years, and then those could be beams and even bigger posts. And then you do like a third, like around 15 or 20 years, and then those can actually get, like already start uh, with the chainsaw, getting bored, doing a little bit more cuts of lumber. And then by 20, 30 years, depending on the species, you're harvesting the big ones and that's where you're getting the, the stuff. So, I mean, there is some money in between doing, uh, but the idea behind the incentives is that it covers those things and, and stuff. So for every tree you plant, you're going to have to, for every tree you cut, you're going to have to keep planting. And there's always studies and all the, uh, all this type of stuff. And the way these studies, these um, they're not set up for very big projects they're set up more for smaller projects so usually they'll they'll pay you full price for let's say 15 hectares which i'm guessing that's about 45 acres yeah about 45, 45 acres so 45 acres they they will they will pay you full price on a project that's 45 acres but as, if it gets bigger than 45 acres then it really goes drastically decreases so basically you get paid full price for 45 acres and for every acre above that. So if you have a hundred acre pro program or a thousand acre program, let's say every acre after the 45, you get a fifth or a 10th the amount. So if you were getting $100 a hundred dollars per acre a year, that's $4,500 a year. Uh, that's full price. Then all of a sudden you're getting $10 an acre after that. Yeah. So that, yeah. What, they, what that does, it's like big, big projects uh, are not really happening because uh, people would rather do one year or two, you know, they do multiple small projects. Yeah. Um, and, and so, and they only let you put in, they only let you put in so many small projects a year as, as an, or as a, as a person or an, an identity. So you got to wait till the next year and then put in another. So, I mean, it's, it's set up it, and in a certain way it's good because it's set up for, you know, all these, the, the more local people, who are the people who really need to take care of the forest to set up set these programs up? So, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it's interesting. It we'll, we'll see what happens in the future with more ideas. I was I've been talking with them a lot and um, telling them that I want to start out a big nursery and and have all these types of trees. And eventually, when they have programs that don't want to go with the standard, which is planting these lumber trees, and they want to kind of go with what I'm doing is either teaching them of how to f- source their own seeds and their own nurseries and all this, or myself having a big nursery and maybe I can supply some of these other projects uh, with these more local native species. Um, that's that longer down the road, but um, that's kind of where I'm heading towards. That's kind of an idea of mine.
0: Yeah, yeah. Seems like there's a lot of potential there, but it, it requires a good knowledge of how the systems work there, where the incentives are, where the limitations are. And that just kind of comes from being there all the time and, you know, talking with locals and navigating the system. Exactly. So let's talk about now some of the ways that you can incentivize this type of reforestation without having to rely on government subsidies or programs. Now, you have a unique idea of turning this into more of a, a tourism or a hospitality uh, enterprise. And exactly. tell me a little bit about how you see that working or developing over time, although you may not have all the pieces set up yet.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I think uh, the future of tourism is moving towards sustainable, biodiverse, agro-tourism. You know, I think people less and less wanna want to go see you know, nature and these type of things. I think there's a, and if not, it's not everybody, but there's a, it's a bit, it's a growth. Um, that's, these tour that uh, destination areas are becoming more and more like, okay, where is their forest? Where is their nature? Where is their, where can I connect?
0: Yeah. I think that's a, it's a really good bet moving forward. I mean, we see in so many news stories and current events, how much, uh, forests are being lost constantly and the, the biodiversity and the access to them with it.
1: Exactly. So I think that's a future thing for, for business, uh, unfortunately, because it should be nice to just go wherever you want and see nature, but, um, and especially nature where you understand nature, because a lot of people don't understand nature. So it's nice to go somewhere where there might be a guide or someone who can tell you about what's happening. Cause what I see is different than what, Someone who's never been in my area see. so it's like they would just walk and kind of be clueless of half the stuff, unless you're really know about the area or about the species or what's happening there. And so, um, these type of agrotourisms, where there's like a guide or someone talking about the situation, you know, um, I think is, is 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 good. And also, um, the idea is uh, for healthiness, you know, and awareness. So talking about awareness and also simultaneously you're out there in nature. You're going to eat healthy food. You're going to have a very nice area to stay in. You're, you're away from noise. You're going to hear birds. You're going to hear, you're not going to hear the highway. You're not going to hear, you know, all sorts of things that come with being in a city. And if you're lucky, you get to see uh, other types uh yeah i think that's that's uh that's kind of the where i'm where i'm pushing for like you you escape for and not just not just um international tourism but local tourism as well there's a you know there's a lot of people in the city who have money and just uh never are in the forest or never are they're they're in a city and they want to get out for the weekend And, and the beach could be a destination you know the lake could be a destination but the mountains could be a destination as well and um yeah you go out there you eat healthy there's retreats we can bring in like special uh workshops whether it's like meditation or whether it's yoga or whether it's people who are in, uh cleansing or i mean there's so much stuff out there nowadays it's just bringing the right person out there and offering the workshop Yeah, and in that type of environment in that type of environment it just um it's really nice, you know, and then at the same time, not only nature, but you can see about the crops and how we grow the crops and how we become a sustainable project, producing our own seeds, producing our own fertilizer, you know, uh, and what you're eating. And it's uh, this whole like lifestyle, and this whole system. That we're trying to basic sell so you can get more aware of it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And the nice thing is like, perhaps, I think, you know, the owners of Habitanango too, Um, the, the guys who kind of Mm took, yeah, the guys who kind of took a risk on, on a concept up in the mountains outside of Antigua, not, you know, similar distance in some ways from where your guys are situated. And at this point they've got, they say 70 to 80% of their clientele from Guatemala domestic tourism. And when they started that, they didn't really have any ambition that there would be that much interest within the local communities to go out and see natural areas. But now that's their bread and butter clientele. And it's really nice to see that there's kind of an awakening towards appreciation of the natural resources within the country, whereas before I think there was maybe more of a value placed on going to the beach or going to other countries and starting to recognize how rich uh, the, the ecosystems within that country are themselves. Exactly. Yeah. So... Now, let's talk a little bit about the unique circumstances that you have there. We talked a little bit about the terrain, the microclimate, the elevation where you are. Let's talk about some of the challenges. because I, I, lost,
1: you. I lost you a little bit. You lost me there? Okay. Yeah, start out again.
0: Sure. So let's, let's talk now a little bit about the challenges that you face in that scenario. Because one of the first times that I went out to see your site on Paramos, it was still recovering from a big ash plume that came from a volcano, which, I mean, you're right in the area of that volcano. And there are a lot of things, not just as far as like natural disasters that can threaten the ecosystems there, especially when they've become brittle through deforestation, but also some of the difficulties of the way that your neighbors and other people in the area are managing their land. So can you talk about some of the challenges that you have in your reforestation efforts?
1: Yeah, um... Like you said, neighbors who are just in the opposite instead of like planting trees are in into cutting trees, you know, so it's very complicated with that um, basically, yeah, that whole volcano thing I mean, we're not really in the in the line, like you said, it just really depends on the on the winds if it blows up and the winds are on the direction that we're at, then that's where we get some troubles, but it's gotta be when it blows up hard because a little a little a little thing even though the winds are towards our direction. But that will happen once every five years. And so that's something we have to put up with. I think the forest doesn't get bugged with that. I think we didn't have any issues with the forest. So uh, planting forest is great. It doesn't, it's a, it's a, the agro-tourism and all that doesn't affect anything because it doesn't really ruin the forest. Um, what it does is it ruins our, you know, our vegetables and uh, sometimes our fruit trees, if they're on flower or they have fruit on them. Um, so that's where we have to watch out a bit. It doesn't really kill the fruit trees. It just, we lose the harvest for the next six months. Um, Mm. so those are some of the challenges. Um, as people cut down trees, like neighbors cut down trees, well, there's less water and less water. And that's why I'm planting more, more trees and more trees. And, um, and so I think those are the biggest challenges again. Um, I think those are what we're, we're finding with, with, with the challenges more and more. And, you know, neighbors planting with non-organic products. And so where you're planting, you got to make sure you're not downhill from these people, that there's that your water source is not uh, contaminated and, and stuff like that. But we're in a pretty good spot. So I think we're covered from all that those areas. Um, but I think those are the most challenging. And then at the same time that the community or the government wants to work with you instead of being a barrier. I think those are the always the biggest challenges as well.
0: Sure. Now, with that in mind, do you have a strategy or an ambition to reach out to larger parts of the community or even other parts of Guatemala and the surrounding areas to kind of bring this idea of how someone could reinvigorate a natural forest, especially for the long term, and view it through a different type of profitability lens rather than just as the value of the the lumber itself?
1: Yeah, I'm trying to work with neighbors who want to work with me. The uh, thing is, they're on a day-to-day thing, you know, they're, they don't, they're not on a three, four, five-year vision, you know. They're like, hey, what can I do next month to make my money, you know. So, it's sure. hard for, when I try to sell them something, you know, it's hard for them to believe that something's going to happen really great if we, you know, two, three, five years down the line. Uh, so, and I, and, and sometimes I don't blame them, you know, they need to feed their families. They need to do stuff. They need to, they're, if they don't, they might not be around next the next month, you know? So, um, yeah, I understand what, where they're coming from, but I'm trying to work with people and see who does want to work with us. And part of it is I'm donating trees, uh, to people who want to work with us so they can keep planting with the native species because they don't have their nurseries. And second of all, um, just uh, reaching out and seeing, you know, uh, the community also as well, reaching out who wants trees and donating them. Um, I also developing good ties with them, With simple things like just borrowing the weed whacker to, to a local church, you know, and, um, you know, they need uh, some, some, uh, something, you know, and then just reaching out so they know that they can count on me. So then when I'm, talking to them it's not you know they don't see me as a like oh it's bullshit you know they're like hey this guy really wants to help out and he really sees this as as a potential maybe we should believe him you know it's it's it's, it's a very it's a very slow long process to gain trust in these areas and and um, and then i got two or three good good guys i'm working with and then i think once they start doing it i think uh, other people will will reach out more and then they'll see you know and i think it can keep growing slowly but um you know paving the path correctly and then um yeah and then also uh, with schools i'm starting to to develop a program with schools uh not necessarily in the area but more like schools here in antigua and where they want to plant trees you know and it was very easy for them to go plant trees but then what i realized planting trees is very easy it's uh, you just go and plant it you buy a tree you plant it and boom there it's done and you the kids don't get any attachment to the tree. You forget. And part of the planting the tree is the three years after you plant it. I mean, it's not just, oh, I'm going to go plant a tree and there it is. You know, one out of 10 will survive if you do that. So right, right. there's a lot of maintenance and care for the tree after you plant it in the mountains. So that's something I'm trying to teach them the whole cycle. And the only way to do that is to, to feel an attachment to that tree. So let's go collect the seeds together with the school. Let's go. Let's develop a nursery in the school. Let each kid really spend six months to a year with that tree. So when they go plant it, before they go plant it, there's an attachment there. It's not just like, oh, I just bought it for ten for a dollar and or two dollars, and I plant it, and boom, there it is. Because most of these kids I'm working with probably have the money, Uh, and so they and they're you know they they don't two dollars is nothing for them. But if you teach them the whole, and then it's a whole year. it's a whole year program in school. It's not just go buy and plant and that's end. It. It's, there's, you know, you're going to teach them where the seeds are coming from. You're going to teach them how to prepare soil, how to uh, develop a nursery, grow their own tree. And that might be, like I said, eight to 10, eight, eight to 10 months, the whole school year. And then maybe the next year when they're, if they are, you know, maybe the next year, that's when they go plant it. And so when they plant it, they're losing someone they've been taking care of for that long of a period. They're not going to just forget about it. They're going to want to go check, make sure their tree, at least a majority of them, a bigger chance are going to go check and make sure their tree is doing well for until it survives and and thrives. And I think, you know, if you can make some type of thing like a um, a Facebook or an Instagram thing where they're proud of it and they're constantly taking pictures and and, and it reminds them and there's, I think they'll, they'll be more and they'll be more educated. So sure.
0: No, that's really important. It's an often overlooked aspect of reforestation or planting trees in general. It's like if you don't make sure that they succeed, and like you said, that three-year period is the most crucial. They tend to be able to uh, to be more resilient and be able to thrive with less maintenance after you you cross that three-year mark. But until then, if they're not taken care of, I mean, yeah, the success rate is low enough that most of the trees that you would plant aren't going to survive, and it's kind of uh, just an, an exercise in futility.
1: No. Yeah, it's just more an exercise, you know, and it's like, oh, what are we going to do? I need to keep these kids interested. I need to do something different. It's kind of like the teacher just, you know, and boom, you do something like that. And and yeah, it was a great experience, but it's uh, easily forgotten. And, you know, not many trees are going to survive. And usually what happens is you go to a nursery and you buy whatever. You buy a hundred trees. Within two years, um, I think it's a much cooler idea idea that, you know, you come, you kids can choose their different type of species within the forest. What do you want to plant this tree? And maybe they can grab more, two or three or four or five different types of trees, species, plant them different, learn about them. You know, what are they good for? See the different rates of growth. See this, see that, learn a little bit more. And then a year later, you got not only one tree to plant, but you got two or three trees to plant. And, uh, and then, if, and then there's still. Yeah, so I'm not necessarily saying high school. It could be even earlier, which it should be. But I'm. Let's say I'm just an an example. Would be high school. So freshman year, you could do the nursery. Sophomore year, you're planting your trees. Junior year, you're taking care of the trees planted. Senior year, you're taking care of the trees you planted. So you know, uh, there's a eighty ninety percent success rate with planting trees, and you learned a whole cycle. Um, and it was a a whole program during. Uh, school, you know, and, and, um, I think it's kind of a,
0: yeah, I love that. It's a wonderful idea. Now, uh, before we wrap up here, can you give some advice to people who are listening in now? And actually I'm really interested for myself too, because reforestation is also a very pressing issue here in Spain as desertification is a, is a major threat to the landscape around here. How have like, we talked a bit about how you've gone through your landscape and observed which species uh, work there in which you'd want to propagate tell me a little bit about what you've learned about how to propagate different types of trees And what you've learned in setting up a nursery for maybe uncommon trees or kind of on an experimental basis for someone who wants to try this themselves
1: so the most important is finding the right seed The you got to harvest it at the right time it has to be the a good seed it all starts out with a good first spotting the right tree a good healthy tree and then getting the right seed and then knowing when that time of the year is. And then um, the second of all is how to prepare the seed for when you're going to plant it. Um, Certain seeds need, depending where you're at, they're going to need like a stratification. They're going to need like a cold season um, to mitigate winter and then start in spring some seeds can get planted like here in Guatemala you don't need that you can plant right away um and then some like direct seeded you know they don't like being put in little plugs or something and some like being put in plugs because it keeps them warmer and safer uh, it's a lot of it is going to be trial and error um unless you got someone who's done it in that area and can teach you exactly on the species hmm Um, also rodents, you know, sometimes if you're in an area where there's rodents, if you're planting acorns, let's say if you're planting acorns and you get squirrel, you got squirrels or something, you're planting a whole bunch of acorns on the ground. You might come back and find that most of them are cracked open and (laughs) eaten. you know? So Yeah. yeah, you gotta be careful with what wildlife is there and what type of seed you're using. Um, also, you know, you need to some trees like a lot more water than others, um, and then some some are more delicate with their root systems. So you have to be very careful as to when to, when you move them, transplant them to, um, let's say, whatever you're going to use to let them grow for when you can take them to the field. Mm-hmm. And sometimes so those are are better to just plant directly on on where where you can let them grow to the right size. So there's a lot of technique behind that. And what I would recommend is uh, starting as soon as possible, you know, like get your hands dirty, go do it. Even if you don't know anything, go experiment, go read, go look at the internet, go, go do something. And that's the only way you're really going to become an expert at it because anybody can tell you something, but those are just guidances to help you through the situation. Sure. Sure. at the end your technique what you're going to find out that's the you know trial and error that's how you're going to really find out what works for you
0: yeah now i'm kind of torn between two methods that i've heard of there's one where you baby the seeds and the saplings with you know potting soil mix and compost and make sure that they get the strongest start possible to try and get the the best success rate from the beginning but i also know especially within the permaculture community Those who just like scatter seeds out in the area or plant a ton very, very close together and really neglect them like intentionally in order to ensure that only the hardiest ones survive and that they continue to propagate from those sort of hardier uh, genetics from the ones that are able to, to, to last without that. So like they don't give them any special potting mix. Perhaps they use the exact same soil as you would find on site. Have you tried one or either of those methods and found some success or some advice?
1: Yeah. I mean, that's that, 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 that system works very well as well. Um, just have to have more seeds. So either
0: or it just depending on what resources you have, perhaps.
1: Okay. So it's, it's, it's good. It works. It's just slower and it's not as successful as to develop. I mean, I, I, I like that personally. It's just you need uh, more time and more seeds than the other way. I mean, where I'm at, if you were to do that on a on a on an area that's clear cut, weeds will grow so fast that you probably have you probably have a one in fifty seeds that you throw might might survive. Hmm. So, um, it's maybe even less. I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's a very, I would say even less than that. So if you have plenty of seeds in time, I think that would work. Um, I've done it in certain areas where I don't even, I don't even go and scatter the seeds. I just leave the alpha tree and let the same, the uh, the, uh, the alpha, I, I spot alpha trees. I don't, you know, I leave those there and then let those just naturally drop their seed and uh and have them be born naturally and that's really what a natural forest does and that's really the ultimate way of doing it it's just a much slower process um, and and it's and it's not just like oh those are the toughest that's the best way of do it. i mean you can implement that those are the t- seed you choose that's where you, that's where a a profe- like you have to be better at selecting when you do the other process. What I'm doing is you got to find the what the, is the right tree, which is the right tree that's dropping seeds and it's developing the best trees. Okay, so that's the tree. There might be ten of that same species in the area, but choose this tree because that tree is the one that works for me. That's the that's that's the healthy one in the in the area. Then yeah. then you you plant your 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 seedlings. You know you choose the best seed off of that tree. You might have thousands of seeds from that tree you choose the 10% you're slowly eating as well. And then, and then you plant them and then there's still only like an 80% success rate when, when they germinate even less maybe. And then you start selecting as well. And then you, you go plant them and I've had very good success as far, the problem is you need to, you know, you need to make sure you're collecting plenty of variety of seeds because it's very easy to just do one species that, that, that way. Yeah. Um, So if it's uh, the other way, you just collect seeds, throw them all randomly and nature will do its course kind of, um, ultimately I think that's, that's, that's the right way of going about things. It's just, I think it's slower and it's not as successful. Um, and it just depends what your ultimate course is. Are you trying to reforest really quick, really fast? Or are you just going about the perma, like what I've seen more in permaculture? I, I practice permaculture, I practice many other types of organic agriculture systems. But you know, I permaculture, your yields tend to be m- much better for a family or for a community or for a set of families who are investing time into that permaculture system, uh, unless you start applying. You know, other types of systems within your permaculture system, like biointensive systems and and certain types of land management systems, it's hard to get, you know, very consistent yields that you can then outsource to other businesses. You might be able to do in a farmer's market the way I'm talking about, but if you're trying to find other organisms, you need to really
0: dip in efficiency as you get more complex and more diverse.
1: Exactly. And therefore, um, same thing happens with reforestation. If you have all the time in the world and if you are just doing it, you know, um, it's an, and, and it's easy. And uh, luckily, I am in an area where I have, I have employees, we have people, we're an operating farm. It's, it's, it's more labor intensive, but it's I feel like it's a much better success rate and it's a much faster success rate mm. uh, doing it the way I'm doing it i opposed as what you're saying that works really well but i think that would work slower and it's for someone who doesn't have the the labor behind the, doesn't have the manpower behind doing what i'm doing you know it's a, it's easier to just grab seeds and go through them and even easier the real best way is just leaving nature do its course you know you leave your tree you know you're you you when you're in a forest you need some trees okay you you select the ones that are not so good you leave the best ones for seed those naturally drop their seeds you're not even doing the work and then those reproduce slowly like nature would I mean yeah. that's really the ultimate goal be ideally have, yeah. have nature do the work for you instead of yeah instead of you throwing out the seeds and doing it, you're doing nature's work, throwing the seeds where you want. I mean, if you can get the trees in your area to drop seeds and birds take them there and nature flies them out there and that's what's being born, it ultimately nature's telling these are the best plants to be grown here. Yeah. But it's like I said, it's a much slower, it's not as successful. It's, 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 you're gonna, it's gonna take a lot longer to cover land that way, I think, um, that is gonna be available for a yield sooner. Right. right. So if you do that, I'm not going to be able to put tourism into that till 20, 30 years from, you know, it's going to take a while to put some, 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 um, something in there that they can really see the difference between weeds and trees. Um,
0: And it also does depend on your ecosystem because one of the projects that I went to go profile and is going to be one of the interviews that I put into this series on reforestation, they're in a cloud forest environment in Veracruz, Mexico and Mm -hmm. they bought a a pasture land that of course was part of the cloud forest originally, was completely uh, clear cut and left to to pasture cattle for a long time. And as soon as they Mm -hmm. bought it, they took all the cattle off and allowed it to regenerate on its own. And within 15 Mm -hmm. years, it's become a forest completely without any maintenance. Now, that's not going to happen everywhere in the world. That's a very unique ecosystem that wants to be under forest so desperately, has the water resources and everything to allow for that to happen, but there are some circumstances where I have seen where leaving it fallow is actually one of the most accelerating ways to regenerate, but it, it does require very unique circumstances.
1: Yeah, I guess it depends on the type of weeds that are growing in that area. Um, here where we're at, there's a lot of choker weeds, uh, weeds that uh, like are parasi- parasitic, uh, weeds. And therefore here, if you, if, if something is, uh, they'll just start crawling all over it and choking it to death and, mm. and, and not letting it, not letting it grow. So gotta make sure, sh- you know, doesn't mean it, it, it's just a success rate would be a lot and it, and it works. It's just a lot slower. I think, I think I can have a forest doing the way I'm doing. And within five years you'll have something that are, you know, 20, 25 feet tall trees within five, six years. um, So it's half the time at 15 years and being that area being uh, the right, perfect space. So, um, I think, um, I think it just depends on the area, what you're planning to do with it. Yeah. Uh, I'm very fond of just leaving nature, do its thing. I have areas in my, within my farm where I'm just not touching and I'm just, you know, I'm playing around with it and I'm just letting it go wild and, you know, it's, it, it, right now there's all these, just all my, the weeds where I'm at, they grow 20, 15 feet tall, the weeds where I'm at, you know? And so right. they're huge, you know, these weeds. And then eventually they start dying out and they, weeds cover weeds. And then that's when the trees start evolving. So the successive it, models of the forest naturally. Yeah, exactly. It takes two to three years before even a tree might sprout. And then it takes, you know, it just, it's, 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 and it works great. It's just areas. They just, if they're very isolated and they're very hard to plant trees on them, those are probably the best areas to do. If it's something that's within, you know, your, your, if you're trying to plant trees within the third and fourth uh, area of your permaculture project, let's say, Mm -hmm. I would say those are actually easier to do what I'm doing in your fifth. And if you, and if you have a sixth area, let's say, well, maybe those are the areas you just want to let nature do its course. Sure. You know, sure. they're just too far out. They're d- getting the trees out there, moving out to those areas, trying to take care of that uh, that situation. It's very labor intensive. It's too. It's 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 complicated.
0: Yeah, you especially know, those when you are, start talking about the broad acreage that you're working on when you start getting exactly. the so there's a lot
1: of areas in my farm where I'm just they're just very hard access, and those I'm just leaving them go wild. And those are the area anything that's very close, or I want tourism to be walking through where I did. There, it's a very nice view. And, and that, those are the areas I'm more planting quick. I want that to really come out as fast as possible. And then after three years, four years, my trees are, like I said, my, my trees within three to four years, I planted some trees two years ago. They're already 10 feet tall, two years ago. Hmm. Um, not all of them, but some of them are 10 feet tall, two years. Um, so one year of making the tree, right? One make of making the tree. So the tree, when I put it on the ground, it's about two feet tall. One, you know, by the time, then two years later, it's 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 over ten feet. It's already starting to look nice within three within two years since I put it on the ground. It's already it's it it looks it looks like there's something there. And then I might just take care of it for another year or so, and and then I just let natural weeds grow. But the the trees alone are gonna create shade, and then so they're not gonna let all the bottom grow too crazy anymore. They're gonna control it. They're gonna be dropping their leaves. They're gonna start developing. Mulch a lot faster, too, I use mulch from my forests as fertilizer as well, so if I depend on that mulch, how fast can I get that mulch production going? Sure. Um, I use a tree mulch forests, which then I compost with animal products and, and and all sorts of stuff, whatever I can get my access to and that's a very important uh, part of my fertiliz- fertilization is using uh, tree tree scraps from below basically, how soon can I produce that
0: yeah yeah how soon can okay. you can you start to get the yield from the forest products like that so that it starts to maintain itself is what you're getting at
1: Yeah it's like a byproduct and then I use that to compost you know with my animal manures and stuff and and I can create fertilizer for, right, the, right. for the for the for the veggies for the avocados for the fruit trees for stuff like that so I mean there's another another thing behind that as well so but like year trees that I planted three years ago, you know, I don't have to take care of that area anymore. Um, but you know, if I would have left it without doing this, like you're saying, it, it, trees would just be starting to sprout right now after gotcha. three years. Gotcha. And yeah, through, that's good to works. know.
0: It's, it's those types of practical answers that I love getting from people who are boots on the ground, really doing this stuff themselves, because in different cases and with different, uh, criteria, or different goals, different approaches work, or or fail depending on, like you said, um, the amount of people that you have able to work on this, and the goals of the project itself. It changes the context, and it's very good to hear uh, what you found through your your own practical experience. Now, with that in mind, can you tell our listeners how they can either get in touch with you to learn more or uh, find out more about the projects in general and uh, and get in touch?
1: Yeah, well, you can find us on Facebook at Coba Farms uh, or Instagram, Coba Farms. Um, we got a pretty decent response rate there. So if you want to contact us that way or our website, www.cobafarms.com. Um, and you can ask for Alex. That's me. And then I will, you know, we can start chatting together. And if it's something interesting, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll keep talking. Yeah. Um, I think that's the best way.
0: Nice. And definitely to anybody listening, I highly recommend, certainly if you get a chance to visit Guatemala, Cooba Farms is one of my favorite places to ever hang out. The food there is amazing. And it's just an incredible place to see such a, a successful kind of intensely managed permaculture inspired, but also very pragmatic way of growing a lot of diversity and a lot of uh, rentable, uh, like profitable crops, um, as well as all of the things that you have set up there for uh, for families, for events. It's, it's an incredibly inspiring place to see. So if anybody gets a chance, definitely check it out. And uh, Alex, thank you again so much for your time. It's been super inspiring to come out and see all of your different projects. I've learned so much from the observation and the experience that you've gained throughout this time and that you've shared with me generously. So I wish you all the best in these projects. I really hope I get a chance to come and visit you again before too long. And congratulations on your growing family as well
1: thanks oliver it's always a pleasure doing these interviews with you i like uh, i'm passionate about what i do so i like getting my stuff out and um yeah come visit us uh now i quit my other job so so basically i'm going to be full-time here at the farm and yeah just come ask for me and i'll probably be around
0: (laughs) yeah sounds good man all right well you take care i wish you all the best and we'll be in touch
1: okay thanks oliver all right bye
0: (music) Alright that wraps things up for this week's episode. If you enjoyed this interview and want to find more like it, as well as articles and other resources, you can find the full library of previous podcasts at AbundantEdge.com. The best part is that you can search by topic rather than wading through more than a 100 interviews by typing in any keyword or topic that you're looking for in the search function on the podcast page. I've spoken to experts on everything from growing your own food, building homes from natural materials, to beekeeping, vermicompost, permaculture design philosophy, and so much more. Thank you so much to those of you who've taken the time to reach out via comments and emails. Your contributions help me to make this the conversation that it's intended to be and helps me create more of the content around the topics that you're interested in. If you have any insights, advice, questions, or suggestions, be sure to send them to me at info at and I'll look forward to being in touch. New episodes come out every Friday like clockwork, so I'll catch you on next week's show.